0: Wide Unclasp the tables of their thoughts. These same thoughts, people, their little worlds. Welcome to Wide Unclasped. After Sarah Winchester's death, the house became a tourist attraction. Tours were offered regularly. And the grounds became sort of a park. And people loved spending time there, Winchester Park, and it was still the largest part of the acreage was still out there. But in 1964, the Sayufi family purchased a bunch of the land right behind and across a small street from the house. And what they did was they built a series of movie theaters starting in 1964 with the Century 21. The century 21 is really an excellent sign of what movie theaters had to become following the rise of television. Because prior to the 1950s, we had this idea of grand movie palaces. And yes, there were grand movie palaces, but they were almost indistinguishable from traditional theaters, live theaters. They would have the same billboard type, they would have the same pretty much everything. The one Change that happened is in the 50s. Movie theaters started to become their own sort of style, and one style, a hyper mid-century modernist style, was the large domed theater. Now the Safi Company had started in Vallejo and spread, but it was really the flagship building and theater was the Century 21. A dome, I think it was 40 something feet tall, beautiful theater, more than a thousand seats, and it was originally designed to show the Cinerama three-strip process. It never did. It, the thing I think it did sh- end up showing was the 70 millimeter films. I was lucky enough to be able to see a lot of movies before they changed the screen to a traditional more flat screen method. I saw a number of films, hundreds of films, at the 21, 22, and 23. The 22 was opened, I think, three years, two or three years later, and the 23 a little after that. The key to the Century 21 was that huge screen, the largest screen in the Bay Area that wasn't a dedicated IMAX screen. And we had one of those in particular at Marriott's Great America before IMAX became just a thing you go to a regular movie theater for. There was, you would walk in and there'd be a pretty significant lobby. It wasn't a huge lobby, but it was was clear that it was a lobby and you'd be facing right across from the concession stand. But because these theaters were so large, and the movie-going audience here in San Jose is massive, there was a ton of publicity things done here. So, for example, there was a race movie, a racing movie, in the 19, I think 1966, in which actual race cars were brought in and parked in front of the theater, and they did a whole sort of rigmarole. Test screenings for things like Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, all sorts of publicity things were done at the Century 21 and the 22. When I started, my first job ever was I was a statistics collector for a company called LeStrange and Associates, working for a guy named Walt von Hofe, who I adore, is a wonderful human being. And they would do a lot of the previews at the Century 22, and I would go and I would write down who was in what categories and any notes I heard. I heard a lot. Uh, it was a great job. I got to see movies like The Doors. Hudson Hawk, which is still one of my favorites. Of course, things like Terminator 2 and all those sort of movies that were big openers. And some smaller ones, Radio Flyer, for example. Very good movie, actually. One of the keys, though, to the success of the Century Theaters was this idea that you were in a location where people wanted to be. Now, not everyone who went to the Centuries went to the Winchester House. It's absolutely not true. If it was a weekend, often my family would do. We would stop by the Winchester House. I'd walk around the, if we were early enough, we'd walk around the little area there and maybe go over to the gift shop, look at the gun collection, all sorts of different things. But for the most part, they were sort of two separate audiences, but one definitely reflected on the other. And the person who picked up on this the most was an artist named Jeremy Blake. And he sort of has this thing called, I think it's technically the Winchester's Trilogy. Um, it is a series of avant-garde artworks. They're currently held, I believe, by SFMOMA. But you can see them on YouTube, and I'll link, of course. That are explorations of themes. Themes of Western. The idea that the Winchester House is a house that could only exist in the West. One of the reasons for that is that it took someone to come from the East into the new area, into the West, to found something remarkable. That's a a massive theme that runs all throughout. There's also the idea of the Western as the lawless world, and then there's the Century 21 where it's being shown. And this idea of how the violence of the West led to a new sort of Americanism. Which is best expressed through cinema. There's all of this great stuff. And Jeremy Blake and his wife, Teresa Duncan, ended up being murdered by Scientology. Um, That's, it's not a one-to-one. It's a very complicated story that basically runs along the lines of they were being harassed by Scientologists because they had been trying to make a movie uh, featuring Beck, the pop star. But things had gone south, and lots of strangeness there. It's, it's a true crime podcast waiting to happen. But of course, since it's crossing Scientology, I wouldn't expect it to happen. Where it gets really interesting with the Century Theatres, though, is that since they are on land that was Winchester land, Sarah Winchester has been seen more than once wandering through the areas. There were stories of employees seeing things in the various theaters. There's one story that I was, probably the first one I ever heard about the theater was, we, at the Century 22, where I worked, we would stack the boxes of Coke syrup. And one day they had gotten the delivery and they had stacked the boxes. And then they left. And when they returned to stack another set of boxes, the previous set wasn't just knocked down but it had been pulled out from the wall about five feet. They were the only people in the thing. There was no one else who could have done it. But this is a story that I wrote about in the first issue of Wide Unclasped, and it's called Century 23, August 1995. I've heard many stories about people citing Sarah Winchester, several from people who used to work at the house, especially those who weren't there to see her, but came across her very much as a simple byproduct of their employment. One story told to me by an old-timer at a meetup at my favorite hotel in America, the San Jose Doubletree, had the most interesting from the house itself. Others who have worked in the house reported seeing her, most often on the grounds, but she also seems to have a thing for housework. Most report seeing her while vacuuming, dusting, or decorating for the holidays. As far as I can tell, she's never been seen by a guide on a tour, though one hazy report did come across Obi-Wan's UFO-free paranormal site. I've read stories online of such, but I don't know how true they are. I do have a near-hand experience, and one that really gets me thinking. It doesn't take place at the house, but on what would have been her land, before external development in the 1960s. It was a Wednesday, and it was hot. That describes about one-seventh of all days in August, in in San Jose. I was wearing polyester black pants, a black vest, and a white shirt that showed the twice-weekly washing in unseparated laundry. I was a regular employee of the Century 22, the largest of the three movie theaters that served as neighbors to the Winchester Mystery House. The Century 23 was the one that bordered the house itself, sharing a high, ivy-covered fence. I was loaned out about once a month to the other theaters during the blockbuster summer nights. I was on popcorn duty at the 23 on that Wednesday night, with Wolf just having started about ten minutes prior. The box office was quiet, and the girl manning it, was reading a book, a Stephen King novel as I remember it, and the three others on the floor, Paul, Tanya, and Miguel, all older than my 19 years, were actually trying hard to get things done, since they were in their last hour. I still had two to go. They told me that they were going out to empty the concrete garbage cans in the parking lot. I knew this actually meant they were going outside to fill and drain a couple of nitrous oxide balloons, while just happening to take out the garbage cans in those concrete containers. I went back to my popcorn popper, stealing a few handfuls while no one else was around. About ten minutes passed when I heard a scream, distant. And I figured it was just one of the screens in the theater, but a minute later, Paul ran back in, panting. Shit, dude, he said as Miguel ran in behind him. "Fucking." Miguel added. I could tell they were shaken, so I grabbed a couple of cups, filled them with cherry cokes, because who doesn't love a good cherry coke, and handed it to him. Man. Man, Paul said, shaking. It was, we were changing the garbage can over by the fence, Miguel continued on, and we saw something coming out of the bushes. I thought it was a crackhead, Paul added. She was short and kind of round. She walked forward and there was this car in front of her end. She walked right through it. She walked right through the car, Paul added. Tanya walked back in, tears streaming down her face right through it she said i walked back behind the counter and grabbed her a diet coke she always drank diet coke we kept peppering them with questions tanya hadn't come back in because she just had to stand there she got the best view of the small woman big old-fashioned dress she was pale wearing a hat at the back of her head it wasn't a bonnet she said i hadn't noticed that paul was still holding one of the half-full garbage bags Miguel had abandoned his the second he saw her walk through the car. I was the only one with his senses about him. I was about the only one who really wanted to see what they had seen. I told him to go into the break room, take a few minutes to get it together. Yeah, Tanya added. It'll be nice to finally get our balloons in. I went out into the parking lot. I saw the bag on the ground about thirty feet from the fence, a few feet away from the concrete container, the metal lid of which hanging from the chain that kept it from wandering off. I picked up the bag reached in the container and grabbed the roll of bags at the bottom, pulling out a single one and tying it around so it wouldn't slip. I put the lid back on and checked the others. I changed the bag, dumped them into the compactor, and walked away. Paul was standing behind the counter, leaning, eating popcorn and staring into the parking lot. I knew Miguel and Tanya were in the break room, probably giggling from the nitrous. The other stories of the ghost of Sarah Winchester within the theaters are pretty legendary. Century 22 at the far end had a stockroom that was certainly haunted, and one story going around was of an old woman seemingly walking through the wall into the large theater. We called it A House. She was seen in the middle of the road that separated the house from the Century 21. I can say I've heard that it was not an infrequent thing for her to be noticed out the trailer windows of the old Winchester Park next to the house. Thanks for listening to this shortened episode of Wide Unclasped. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, and next time I'm going to talk more specifically about the house, more specifically about things set in the house, in particular the book Captured in the Labyrinth, Captured by the Labyrinth, the book that uh, rips the lid off of all the stories that the Winchester House has been promoting. I do have issues with it, I'll bring that up. Also about the comic book series, The Winchester Mystery House, which is really entertaining, and I'm looking forward to talking about it. So I hope you'll stay tuned to Wide Unclass.